this is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunmill, an expert in 19th century literary and publishing history. Listeners, today we're doing another Broadview Press collaboration with special guest, Professor Robin Inboden. So Robin was destined to study 19th century British literature from the time she read Keats and Hardy as a teenager. While her long-ago dissertation was on Romanticism, her focus has shifted more to the Victorian period during her three decades of teaching at Wittenberg University, where she's been recognized with the Alumni Distinguished Teaching Award. She has published and presented on George Eliot, Tennyson, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and others. And her most recent project is the Broadview Press edition of Anne Bronte's first novel, Agnes Grey. So welcome, Robin. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for asking me. So I'm going to dive in with the first question. And this is, <laughs> I think, from the first or second page of your wonderful introduction to Agnes Grey. Um where you noted that it may be the most radical of all of the Bronte novels, um, a, a suggestion that I really, really loved. So can you expand on that a little bit for our listeners? I would love to. Um, as I was trying to get, to get together the initial proposal for this edition, um, I struggled because to tell you the truth, the first time I read Agnes Gray, well, the, I would say the first time was many, many years ago, and I really didn't remember anything about it. But the first time I had reread it um, during this process, I kept thinking to myself, when are we going to get to the plot? Um, it, it seemed like such a, a, a sort of an everyday accounting of small things. And so at first, I think I was a little bit uncertain about how to convince uh, Broadview that that anybody needed a new edition. But the more I read it and reread it, and the more I taught um, Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights in my classes and heard students' responses to them, and especially to the men in them, and to the representation of mm -hmm. romantic relationships in them, the more I thought that this novel was actually more radical because it presented um, not these romanticized Byronic heroes who don't actually appeal to most um, young people with healthy senses of relationships, and and the and and when I taught this book, it was so interesting to me to hear how students, my my students got crushes on Mr. Weston. They thought he was um, a much more interesting hero and a much better relationship partner than Rochester, for instance. And so that got me started thinking, and that's what led me to 
to make that bold statement, partly to sell Broadview on the idea of doing the edition, certainly, but I think also based on my experience rereading not only this novel frequently, but of course, Wuthering Heights and uh, Jane Eyre, rereading those frequently in order to teach them. And I think that comparison is what made me um, find this sort of everydayness of this book radical and modern to my to my feelings yeah so i think that and and i think that that's one of the things that drew me then to it um seeing that it was radical in terms of the heroine expecting good behavior from the man she loved, admiring him for his ethical stance um, instead of mm -hmm. making excuses for his, you know, keeping his wife in the attic and lying about mm -hmm. it and, you know, killing puppies and, you know, all the other bad behavior that gets excused. Um, and so I thought that her principled stand as a heroine and the, her sort of clear-eyed observation of what was good and bad about the men around her is, um, I think, really speaks to modern readers in surprising ways. I think that's also very heartening to hear that the undergraduates that you taught, you know, prefer Western. <laughs> I know, I know. Now, of course, I have taught Jane, I have taught Jane Eyre more times than I can count, and I I reread it every time so that I know exactly what their questions are about. You know, because sometimes if if it's not very fresh in your mind, sometimes you can sort of forget what they may misunderstand. So I reread it a lot, and it is interesting to me that um, the Byronic hero, the bad boy hero just does not have the kind of appeal um, for young readers that he did when I began teaching in in the 80s and, and even in the 90s. Um, so even though they there may be some bad boy type heroes in contemporary pop culture that they still like, they're not making the connection. Mm -hmm if in fact that's even true. I think it is a healthy thing. Um, there's a great cartoon that I have printed and put up outside my door called uh, Dude Watching with the Brontes. Yes. yes. Have you seen yes. it? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I loved it so much that I brought, I, I printed out copies and handed them out in class one day to sort of spark a discussion after they had read both Jane Eyre and... Um, and Agnes Gray, and the students just were cracking up, but they also recognized that um, sort of that sense that there is this draw, but they were finding it far less strong, I think, than previous generations of students that I have taught. So they got a huge kick out of that uh, observation as well. Yes, I love those. And for listeners, I think that's from the Harker Vagrant series. If I remember correctly, yeah, it is. Yes, mm -hmm. I w I will trust you on that because I was just so delighted with it that I just 
I just cut it out and put it up. So yeah, she has um, it's Kate Beaton's work, and she has this whole series on Wuthering Heights too that is absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, it's just it's too true. I think that's mm-hmm. that's the appeal. It's sort of you look at it and you recognize, oh yes, I have been romanticizing <laughs> these very badly behaved people. <laughs> and of course that that also makes me wonder too. Um, about Charlotte's ill feelings towards Anne's mm. second book, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which, as you know, she tried yes. to suppress in the combined um, edition of the novels that she shepherded through press after the deaths of her sisters. Um, and she did not want mm-hmm. Tenant of Wildfell Hall included. She did not want to reprint it. Um, and I have to wonder if there, too, there we have sort of the figure who would have been the Byronic hero in Charlotte's book or in in Emily's, um, but who is very much the villain. And you have instead the sort of hapless gentleman farmer, um, Gilbert, mm-hmm. as the hero. <laughs> you know, again, mm-hmm. a much more sort of down-to-earth, realistic person um who actually seems to like and respect the woman he loves so um and charlotte's very negative reaction to the obvious critique of what could have been a byronic hero in one of her books i think speaks to what made her so uncomfortable about um perhaps made her so uncomfortable about Anne's work. Also that it it um conflicted with the with the posthumous image that she created of Anne. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've ranted about that yeah, yeah. <laughs> frequently on Victorian Scribblers <laughs> because as as somebody with three younger <laughs> sisters, it just it strikes me as like such a kind of violent awful thing to do to like I, and I understand kind of the social pressure and the impulse and like the the need to um you know keep selling her own work in a shifting sort of <laughs> moral atmosphere but just yeah I don't know just to kind of write off a sibling like that um is wild yeah yeah yeah, I I would agree. And that was one thing that I found happening as I went through the process of first um, doing the research just to come up with the proposal for the edition. And then, of course, doing the research for the introduction, the, you know, all of the appendices, all of all of the other materials in the Broadview edition. I I was starting to have very complex feelings about Charlotte Um, (laughs) and, and even about, you know, I, as I mentioned, I've taught Jane Eyre many, many times. And in many ways it is sort of a, it's sort of a core text in um, my upper level course on 19th and 20th century British women writers. Um, But, and, it's a bit like teaching. Uh, it's like doing a magic show for students, though, in some ways. I mean, it, it is, it's an undeniably great book. Um, it 
pulls them in. And then at the end, when they've read the whole thing and you start saying, oh, there's Bertha. Do you remember the red room? And, you know, and then it's like, oh my gosh, it's like I did a magic trick or something. It's like, really? I didn't. I just, <laughs> I just pointed out these things to you that Charlotte Bronte put in there. Um, so there's, there's no denying that's a great book that it teaches itself. It's so beautifully mm-hmm. complex. Everything ties into everything else. Um, it is, it's a wonderful book. But um, then you read about some of the things that she said about Charlotte, some of the dismissive way she treated her work, um, her, her apparently her destruction of all but five of Anne's letters. Um, and it it does make you, it just makes you wonder what was going on in that mm-hmm. parsonage. You know, it just seems like, I, I, I know it's not very scholarly of me to say this, but I keep thinking what was going on in that house and, you know, who you know, the way there were these alignments and alliances within the house among the siblings. Um, Apparently Anne was the favorite of Aunt Branwell. Um, You know, how, how did all of this shake out? And um, it does, it does make me have more complicated feelings about Charlotte. (laughs) I will admit it also made me crazy as a, you know, just trying to do research when you realize that we only have five surviving letters by Anne. Yeah, yeah. Can you, because I hadn't ever quite realized that somehow. Can you um, speak more to that destruction and loss of Anne's papers? Like even the gondola <laughs> papers, I couldn't believe that. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, I know. I couldn't either because I, you know, I've always heard about the little books and I always assumed they had mm-hmm. pretty much all of the little books. The idea that the the entire half of the saga the, done by Emily and Anne isn't there anymore, it was floored me. It just floored me. And so um, I, I can't imagine. Now, I, again, there's no, we don't have evidence, at least I don't think we do, that it was for sure Charlotte who destroyed them. I mean, there are some people who suggest that maybe um, Emily might have destroyed the letters when she knew she was dying, but I don't see why she would have done that because she remained much more dedicated to the whole Gondal thing um, after it seems like Anne was losing interest in it. Um, uh, that in the in the birthday in the diary notes, the birthday diary notes. Um, yeah, it seems as though Anne isn't quite as interested in it anymore. But that that Emily's interest continues unabated in the sort of soap opera like plots that she has in mind for the characters in Gondal. So I I have a I have a hard time imagining that either Emily or Anne destroyed those, um, and certainly Emily didn't destroy Anne's own 
mm. letters. Um, and, and those letters were, uh, it seems as though those letters were at least partly to Charlotte because we have Charlotte describing um, things Anne has told her. Like Charlotte in her letters to Ella Nussie sometimes will say, Oh, Anne is not enjoying her po her new post. There's that. I think I quoted mm -hmm. in the introduction. There's that her characterization of of her the first charges that Anne uh, is a governess to calling them something like desperate little dunces. Wow. <laughs> um, and and you get the impression that she is quoting from a um, from a letter that. Anne has sent her clearly, but yes. um, but we don't have that letter. We only have Charlotte's filtering of that letter. Yeah, so that was very disappointing. And I think of the five letters, I, I, I think I know the number because I kept looking and going, are you serious? <laughs> They're only, the, only these five? Um, um, I think one of them is a letter to a minister who visited her when she was very, very sick at school. Um, and that one is mostly about her idea of universal salvation, mm -hmm. right? That every, and, and this, this minister, she thought shared that idea that everybody, everybody would eventually go to heaven, mm -hmm. right? Um, she didn't call it purgatory or anything, but she, she just thought some people might have to do a little extra work um, because she couldn't stand the idea of, of anyone being mm -hmm. eternally damned. And so that's one letter. And then the others are, boy, they are very thin gruel. Um, one, in fact, one of them is a letter that she's writing on Charlotte's behalf. Wow. It's not even her letter. She's writing a letter on Charlotte's behalf, I believe, to Charlotte's publisher, if I'm remembering correctly, um, because Charlotte is too broken up over Branwell's mm -hmm. death. But of course, Anne, who is also Char Branwell's sister, apparently Charlotte figures she can do that with no problem at all. Wow. So, it's, yeah, it's... It's a very, it seems like a very weird yeah, dynamic. Yeah, that doesn't really track with this image of her as kind of gentle and, and the weakest sister, right? The weakest, exactly, exactly. And that's, and, and also I think I point this out in the introduction that, um, that according to Charlotte, she dwells on mm. um, Anne's almost, she does say almost her last words, were, you know, like, oh, I'm so grateful that I'm dying with so little pain. It's not so bad after all <laughs> to be dying. Um, and and that was not, Ellen, Ellen Nussie said her last words were, to Charlotte, take mm -hmm. courage. She's bucking up Charlotte as she's dying, which very much, I think, I, you know, seems to conflict greatly with that image that you point of mm -hmm. gentle Anne gentle mm -hmm. Anne. That is the, that's the phrase. Or I love as Elizabeth Langland's um, book, her subtitle, yeah. The Other One. <laughs> Anne Bronte, The Other One. <laughs> but those, the, that seems to be the image that um, 
that Charlotte tried to um, ingrain <laughs> in everyone's memory uh, about Anne were those mm-hmm. two ideas that she was sort of an afterthought and that she was just unfailingly gentle. Like when she talks about um, finding Eliz- finding Emily's poetry and it's full of wild genius. And then she says, my other sister shyly brought forward some of her own small productions and um, they have, they have their own quiet charm mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. or something like that. Very dismissive. Um, she diminishes, um, she diminishes Anne's talents, I think, both in talking about her poetry and her novels. Yeah, I was really interested in, I think it's one of the birthday letters. She mentions a three-volume novel that she's writing. And you right. mentioned that that's definitely not Agnes Grey, but what was she writing? And has that been... What was she writing? Yeah. Or or did she... Or, you know, it's possible that she thought Agnes <laughs> Grey was going to be a three-volume novel and then she realised... I have no plot. So so she decided to go with something else. Um, yeah, I, I'm fascinated by that as well. Of course, you know, there's also this sort of controversial idea that Emily completed a second novel that Charlotte destroyed. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I, I'm, I know that there is that sort of, uh, there is a controversial theory that that's the case. I don't, I don't know enough about that to know, but it it does. Um, I, I'm not sure what that says about Charlotte. Was she insecure? Was she just trying to keep her sister's memories from being sullied by unladylike texts? I don't know. And the frustrating thing is, of course, we'll never know unless, unless somebody, you know, finds a secret box somewhere in an attic that would answer all our questions. Mm-hmm. It's the dream. <laughs> I know that's the. It is the dream. I got so excited when the recent news came out. I just saw a headline. You know, lost Bronte manuscripts. You know, to be sold by Sotheby's, and <laughs> and I was thinking, oh my gosh, real lost manuscripts. But no, it's it's the law collection, which we have transcriptions of. Mm-hmm. So we just just not the real thing um, for many years. So. So I think that one of the things that I would, um, that's one thing I would love to know more about, but again, I don't think there's ever going to be any, um, anything more than speculation about, about that relationship among the sisters. The one other thing I would say though, is that also Charlotte seemed to identify in Emily in particular a kind of genius that, and I don't know whether it was that she, whether it was something that was similar to what she thought was her own genius in that sort of um, iconoclastic relationship between Jane and Rochester and the iconoclastic hero of Rochester. I don't know whether it was something that she saw Heathcliff and Rochester as sort of kindred spirits, maybe, or, or whether she saw Emily as someone more bold than she herself, even. 
in in breaking those boundaries. But she she seemed to recognize and admire a wildness mm-hmm. in Emily um, that she she abhorred when she saw it come out in in Anne's second book, and I think dismissed Anne's first book out of hand because it it was of it was so very different from her own. And also, I think she she's she may have resented that Emily felt closest to Anne um, when when she recognized uh, Emily's genius, and she may have felt that um, she wanted the relationship between the two of them to be more exclusive. It also almost reminds me of I have the opposite personal perspective to Courtney, where I have two older siblings. And it reminds me of that dynamic where even though you're mm. an adult, when you're the youngest, you are still the baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and you see that come out so much in Agnes Gray in the early chapters. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me that she gives herself mm. only one sister. Yeah. But, uh, and and I'm not sure quite sure what to make of that. Um but it's not a sister like Emily. Emily, um, they're one year apart and um, were sometimes referred to in the family as the twins because they were just inseparable mm-hmm. um, when they were living under the same roof. And um, I think that, that that relationship and then with the two sort of boring but coordinated um, sagas of Angria and Gondal that sort of reinforced this sort of splitting into two camps, Charlotte with Branwell and Emily with Anne, um, that maybe Charlotte was sort of trying to undo or to re reconfigure um, in their, you know, more mature works later on, especially when she had some control over the republication of her sister's works. You know, we could probably talk all day about the Bronte uh, sibling dynamics and still have more to say because, yeah, there's just a lot going on there. Um, mm-hmm. Probably. You should get, <laughs> yes, you should get us into safer waters than speculation about family dynamics. Yes. Um. Yeah, so I think in in the introduction, you mentioned that um, Agnes Gray in particular is this really interesting governess novel in that it actually dwells on pedagogy, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. right, where a lot of them don't at all. Yes. And I wonder, um, yeah, what what is the kind of pedagogical um, th- uh, philosophy that we find in Agnes Gray? <laughs> Well, it, it's interesting because mm-hmm. it, it dwells on pedagogy in a sense. Mm-hmm. It dwells on her daily life with her pupils, um, which, as I think I think I say in the introduction, something like other prominent governess novels of the time, like Vanity Fair. Do we know if Becky Sharp even ever goes into the schoolroom? I have no memory of, of that in the novel. So... Um, I do think that there is a dwelling on the everyday routine, 
But I think one of the things that's interesting is that um, Agnes very much wants to teach. She wants to be a good pedagogue. Mm-hmm. Um, but much of her description of the schoolroom ends up being about her mm-hmm. her pupils' unwillingness to engage with any kind of of learning at all. Um, or and that's her constant frustration. But you know, the famous first line of the book, I have it, I think I can get to it quickly enough. Um, refers to her desire to instruct. Mm. All true histories contain instruction, mm. though in some the treasure may be hard to find, and when found, so trivial in quantity that the dry, shriveled kernel scarcely compensates for the trouble of cracking the nut. And I love that that first line both sort of sets forward her own hope that she will you will learn something from her story but there's also that that sense that the pupils that she actually tries to teach in the book barely ever go to the trouble of cracking the nut (laughs) of of the lessons she tries to give them Um, and in fact um, especially in her first position at the Bloomfields um, she clearly is trying to teach the children some kind of um, responsible behavior, uh, some kind of sense of order, a sense maybe of their own privilege, and a sense of how they should be treating other people, and of course, um, famously, how they should be treating small sentient creatures Mm. and um so she's wanting to teach them not only their lessons but to teach them how to be good and decent people and i think that's the great frustration of that first position is that that is not the goal of the parents the parents undermine her when she when she tries to correct the children's behavior in fact um and and i think although it, there's nothing as um as gory or startling as the incident with the baby birds at the bloomfields when she is with the murrays um she's also still trying to teach them not just um geography and how the use of globes and the the kinds of accomplishments that governesses were expected to impart but she's trying to question and i find this interesting she tries to engage especially rosalie in conversation um and do you expect what do you expect from this person if you don't like him why do you want him to come around don't you see that that's wrong um she she uses almost a kind of Socratic method to try to try to try to get Rosalie to examine her own um, interactions and um, and ethics. So I think more than any school book lesson, I think Agnes's goal is to try to teach these children to be better people. Um, and I think one of the things that maybe 
is a little radical about the book is also that she shows the parents, the rich, privileged parents, as being utterly uninterested in their Mm -hmm. children learning to be better people or to feel any kind of responsibility (laughs) for the way they interact with other people at all. And that critique is, I think, um, was taken as as pretty bold and and pretty rude in some in some quarters. Yeah, yeah, I was really struck by that um, mention of Vanity Fair in the in your introduction because I had completely forgotten that Becky Sharp was his governess. If you, <laughs> it's easy to do. <laughs> if you asked me to describe Agnes Gray, I would say she was a governess. If you asked me to describe Becky Sharp, I would, you know, say social climber or any other. A lot of other descriptions before governess. Exactly. Well, and 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 if you remember, um, the was it the first edition of Jane Eyre was dedicated to Thackeray mm-hmm. because they were they were all reading uh, Vanity Fair in its serial installments as they were writing. Wuthering Heights, Jane Eyre, and Agnes Grey. Almost kind of ironically, as you were speaking just now, I was thinking Becky Sharp is probably better suited to provide the kind of education the parents want. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Um, Yes, although, of course, since since she actually enacts it herself, Mm. (laughs) um, they would be less pleased about that Mm, part. Not quite in that sense. But you also see, um, and I think this is per- this this struck me particularly, is that although certainly she does she does not limit her critique of the the affluent to only men, it seems as though um, her depiction of what's wrong with the mother and grandmother is is different in kind from the way she depicts um, the the men, the father, the two fathers, and the second father, the Mr. Murray, is not is not depicted as um, as awful as Mr. Bloomfield, but he, but Mr. Bloomfield and the the uncle, <laughs> as one chapter is just called, um, are they're just horrifying they're so mean and nasty and and i think one of the interesting things is that they we see them not only kicking dogs and killing birds and things like that but um we also see mr bloomfield constantly criticizing his wife in front of agnes and in front of the children Mm. And so to me, um, that's why the whole idea of how uh, kindness to animals is almost used as a as a marker of character in the book. And I, I mean, I think I think that's something most people would notice even on a first read. Mm-hmm. There are just there are a lot of animals and and um, Agnes is very soft-hearted about them and a lot of the other people she meets are horrible about them um but mr weston is sort of on the same wavelength as she is 
he's, I think, the only man other than her father um, who shows that kind of regard for um, small, dependent creatures and also shows that kind of caring for other people as well. And neither, and, and you just realize Agnes, um, in the way this novel is set up, Agnes has met almost no grown men outside her father. I mean, she, you know, she just lives a very sheltered life. And um, so I think she's sort of taken aback when she realizes that these people whom she's supposed to respect and admire are in fact kind of awful people. Mm -hmm. So I think that, um, I think that's one of the things that is radical is that realism of um, exposing how the rich and mighty may not actually be role models. Uh, they may not be worthy of all the respect accorded them. And so I think that's another way in which I think the novel is more, um, more radical than it might at first appear. Yeah, that's really, um, I mean, kind of put that way, I've just been thinking she kind of shows, you know, how, how we get this sort of arrogant, privileged, um, horrible ma masculinity, mm -hmm. um, how that is made like in real time. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Ex yeah, exactly. Um, and, oh, I'm going to forget. I think it's Judith Pike has a, has a great article on that. It's got a, mm. it's got a fabulous long title about milk sops and breaching boys. And, um, and, and it's, it's really sort of about that, about the, the creation of what we might call toxic masculinity today. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the, the, you know, we, and we see it not only directed toward the children, but toward Agnes herself. And as I mentioned, even toward their own mm -hmm. wives. Um, so it, no, no one is safe in this book anyway, from the kind of um, rough, privileged dismissal um, by these powerful men. I'd love to talk a bit more about animals. I mean, when I was first... Okay. When we you know, first approached you and Broadview about talking about Agnes Grey, my lasting image from the first time I read it, which was a few years ago, was that image on the sands of Snap and his role mm. in her courtship with Weston or her relationship with Weston. I will admit, um, I am I am such a sap. I, <laughs> Me too. As you as you realize that this, um, you know, I how many times did I read this book in the last two years? I think it was eight or something like that. But each time it was like, I can't wait to get to that chapter. Yeah, because I think there's something about that reunion and the way that it's sort of mediated by Snap yes. the dog. <laughs> um, is just is is so um, 
it's it feels kind of fresh and uh, natural, but it also ties that back in. If you remember, one of the first times she lets herself be um, impressed, at least that we as readers know, it's a first person narrative, right? So mm -hmm. she holds it close to the vest at times. Um, but um, one of the first times that she begins to have somewhat tender thoughts of Mr. Weston is when he um, she's visiting Nancy Brown, the cottager, um, the cottager with the very thick and frustratingly spelled dialect <laughs> passages. And um, and Nancy is upset that her because her cat is gone and hasn't come home. And then Mr. Weston arrives with the identical cat in his arms, is the way it said. Um, and he's rescued. He's rescued the cat from. Mr. Murray who and the gamekeeper who were who were going to kill it. Um and so that's tied in. And then um if you recall Snap's whole story, um he was originally a, a pet for Matilda, the tomboy younger daughter, um, who would not care for Snap, would not train Snap, but then was angry when Snap preferred Agnes because Agnes fed him and <laughs> trained him and played with him. And so her 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 answer was not to just give it to give Snap to Agnes, but was to take Snap away from Agnes to punish him for preferring her. And so uh, I love that idea that um you know he 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 doesn't I should say Mr. Weston uh, doesn't blandish her with gifts or, you know, talk about two string, the string connecting their hearts or something the way that Rochester does. But he, he, he picks the primroses for her that she can't reach for herself and he rescues her dog. Um, and I love the way that they at, the, at after he they start talking on the sands, um, when their paths diverge. Um, Anne Bronte depicts Snap as being indecisive <laughs> and looking at both of them, wondering which way to go, um, which is obviously a great detail if you're a dog lover, um, as Anne Bronte clearly was, but also. Um, that that Agnes says, no, he can go with you now that I know he has a good home. Yes. Right. And I think that it's that um it's that sense that um it wasn't about me, it was about making sure that he has a good home. And of course ultimately we I guess can assume that he has a good home with both of them. So um yeah, but he but the you know, those three moments, I think, of the, the, the baby birds at the Bloomfields, um, his rescue of the cat, Mr. Weston's rescue of the cat, and then Snap um, are sort of almost pivotal moments where you really learn what people are made of. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's very interesting that that was, um, that just the care for um, animals was used in that way 
as a moral marker. Not unusual for the Brontes. They were, of course, as you know, they had a menagerie of bizarre pets, both wild and domestic at various times. Um, and in, I think it's interesting that actually um, Flossie, the little spaniel, the little black and white spaniel that was Anne's, uh, was actually a gift from her last, the her charges, the Robinsons, mm-hmm. who were upon whom we, we assume the Murrays are partially based. Yeah. So, and you just wonder if, if that was really a gift to Anne or if it was some, or if it was a dog that the girls got and then they didn't pay attention to it. Yeah. <laughs> but at least they didn't sell it to the rat catcher. So, <laughs> yeah. So I think that, that, I think there's a tie there between in some ways um, because, because masculinity at the time one of the markers of masculinity was, you know, the hunt mm. and, and all that. And I think that um, that's one of the interesting things she's doing is to question, you know, the, the killing of animals, the, um, the robbing of birds' nests, all that sort of thing. She, sort, she just overtly criticizes that as a marker of masculinity and says, no, this does not make you a good man. This just makes you a brute. Um, And she offers a very different role model of masculinity um, who treats the poor, the sickly, and little animals kindly. So that's another, you know, again, just another way of sort of what I see as a more radical revision of masculinity in the book. Yeah, I just keep thinking that, I mean, on one hand, I'm kind of torn because I think, you know, I think, and some of the materials that you incorporated with this edition sort of speak to this. Anne's work is um, very much of like the Jane Austen tradition in a way, but I think that her work is very gothic in, but it's much more of a, a a gothicism that's rooted in the actual horrors that many of us encounter, like toxic masculinity. Hmm. Yeah, that's a wonderful way. That's just a wonderful way to put it. Yeah. I mean, when you say gothic, most people would point directly at Tenet of Waldfell Hall. Um, as I did, I believe in the I think it was the very first conference paper I gave was about Wildfell Hall. It had some, like it had some title like Wild Anger, Fell Wrath, or something like that. Um, but and I think it's easy to see it. But I think you're right. There is a kind of you know I think you can see um, a gothic quality in that exposure of the horrors of everyday life that people of the 1840s didn't even see as horrors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it very much reminds me of, you know, sensa- like later sensational narratives where women's lives kind of close around them. I'm thinking specifically about Daniel Deronda because yes. uh, of the animal abuse in that one yeah. too. But like Gwendolyn's narrative reminds me a lot of um, the oldest. I'm, I'm Yes, uh, the oldest, Mur- the oldest Rosalie Murray. Yes, yes. yes. Mm. Yeah. 
Well, yes. And, and of course, we could have a whole raft of, of later 19th century characters, especially, who have mm-hmm. that same, you know, it's like, I'm supposed to find, you know, the fanciest husband I can find. And it doesn't matter, you know, you know, my mother says every, everything will be okay. My older female advisor says it'll be okay once we're married. You know, you won't mind. Mm-hmm. It, you mm-hmm. know, you can think of Portrait of a Lady. I mean, you can think of a lot of later um, heroines who are in that similar um, trapped. They're sort of trapped in their privileged idea of marriage. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I noticed particularly in this in this book is that um, it really openly criticizes the mother for essentially lying to her daughter mm. and mm. setting her up. And in fact, Agnes and Weston have a conversation in which, I mean, they, they, they do it in a way that, you know, if they were overheard, well, it would, people would still be upset if they were overheard, but, but, um, they don't directly say, oh, I can't believe her mother pimped her out, but that's essentially what they're saying. You know, mm. they're, they're, they're recognizing mm. that, you know, her own mother didn't worry about this man who everyone knows is a dissolute rake. Um, she didn't try to steer her daughter away. No, he's the richest one. He, she steered him right toward him. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. it's interesting too, it's, and shocking actually to me, the way that Rosalie, um, when she has Agnes come visit her, you know, Agnes, whom she's always d- treated like an inconvenience. Um, and she invites her because she's the only f- friend she has, which is a a very dark place. <laughs> That that's mm-hmm. the only the only friend you have. You realize after you've married this man, whom you despise. I think is the word she uses several times about her her new husband. And um, but I think even more shocking is her um, bland dismissal of her own child. Remember, she has a, a little yeah. baby. And she's just like, well, I don't want to get too attached to it. You know, they die. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's like, I don't, it, it seems like she's, maybe we, we might attribute that to some kind of trauma reaction almost. That kind of, you know, she just, um, she wants, she it seems as if she's not wanting to acknowledge what she has really done by marrying and that that there is no escape from this um and that she can't even muster um any sympathy or care for the child that she has brought into the world because it's also his child um it's that that whole visit is a very it's an interesting choice to include it i think in the book because it sort of rounds off that it doesn't it doesn't let the reader escape with any kind of 
glossing over of that. Like, oh, well, maybe it'll all work out. Maybe rakes do make the, maybe reformed rakes do make the best husbands. Um, she's she's <laughs> yeah. having none of that. Um, she's She's letting you stare at the full on disaster of of that kind of marriage much as she will then do in the tenant of wildfell hall mm-hmm. and so that's why i find too you know as you what you're saying about that comparison to with that comparison to gwendolyn harleth the that sense of claustrophobia um yeah. inside the expectations that people have of her and that's why i think too to go back to um, your earlier comment of, about the the scene on the sands, just think about that set that you know that setting with the dog outside early in the morning. You know, dawn breaking. It's it's such a wonderful counterpoint to that hot house marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, um, if you, I mean, it is a marriage. It's hardly a relationship but but the the contrast couldn't be greater between the way she finally and and also because she has already in some ways fulfilled some of her other dreams she wanted to have a school with her mother she you know she and her mother are in charge right and mm-hmm. and she is contributing to the family She's, you know, after her mother and father and sister are always, oh, you're the baby, you can't do this. Don't, you know, I don't don't know. I don't think you're ready to do this. Um, And now she has, she has grown up. Her own maturity has been acknowledged and she is contributing um, and she has some control. But then, then she also um, is able to find that kind of emotional connection that clearly she was longing for in all those times when she's so, so lonely in those governess mm-hmm. positions. And of mm-hmm. course that, that loneliness of the governess is something that we see not only in other governess novels, but also in, um, in the history of the, of mm-hmm. the time, you know, all of the, you know, Mary Poovey and Jean Peterson's um, work on the liminality of the governess and how uh, nobody, nobody in the house was going to have a friendship with her, right? She was mm-hmm, betwixt mm-hmm. and between. So I think that's very well captured in in the book too. And that that makes the final chapters, I think, all the more moving. Yeah. So I think... That was the bulk of our questions. I'm wondering if we if we missed anything that you were hoping to talk about. I don't know. I feel like I have talked too much. Um, no, no, <laughs> um, no, not so. But um, I I did really I loved the process of doing this um, edition. It just it it um, I loved the detail work. Um, of the actual editing process, but also I love doing the archival work. I mean, thank you archive.org for existing and making, <laughs> making it possible for someone, you know, working at a small liberal arts college in Ohio to access all these obscure 19th century texts. Um, um, I 
you know, I love that part of it. And, and I love um, learning more about her. And then of course, obviously all the, the many ways that the book has been interpreted as well. I, I, I do think I'm, I'm, uh, I gave a paper sort of late in the process at the, the last in-person North American Victorian Studies Association conference. And uh, it was, it was about masculinity and the animals in the book. And so I'm, I, I, I'm working on um, trying to get that. I think I'll get that ready to submit, but then I want to look into um, a connection between Anne and Jane Austen a little bit more as well. Um, yeah. Cause that was such, I just, I just kept feeling persuasion welling up um, mm-hmm. uh, as I was reading the book well of course i i feel persuasion welling up in lots of things all the time so <laughs> may not be a surprise but um but i do think that um i want to you know there's the famous um sort of judgment of jane austen by charlotte as you know yeah. well she may be a very fine lady but um you know there's no pulse there's no mm. life um and I think that I want to, I want to look a little bit more and I'm, I'm having to dig around and try to find some information that history doesn't want me to find, but I, but I may have a lead. Um, but, you know, six years and did not live in Haworth Parsonage. So yeah. um, she had access to the libraries in the homes of um, her employers. And so I want to, mm. I want to, I want to maybe do a little bit more, see if I can f- do a little bit more and think more about that, um, that sort of budding romanticism that you find, that I find in Austin's persuasion, um, the most romantic with a big R of her, <laughs> of her books. Um, mm. And, and see if that's, maybe another way that Anne differs from Charlotte. Um, Because to me, I was feeling that, that sort of intense interiority, that sense of loneliness and reaching out for a kindred spirit. um, And that sense of someone who like Weston gets Agnes. um, Agnes gets mm-hmm. Weston in a way. It seems as though they mm-hmm. they're very they're very simpatico in the same way that Wentworth and Anne mm-hmm. um, seem to just have a connection that is and and to admire in each other things that other people miss about them. And I think that that's maybe one of the things that and the seaside settings, of course, <laughs> that that um, yeah. that um, that constantly made me think about that. So I, I want to look into that a little bit more, too, um, because I think um, just because Charlotte didn't think much of Jane Austen, I don't think we should assume that Anne didn't have quite other feelings about that. Yeah. yeah. Do we know if um, if Charlotte's pronouncements about Jane Austen uh, came kind of before or after? Because I, I wonder if they're stemming, like if Anne is being compared to Jane mm. Austen and then suddenly Charlotte is like, oh, pff, Jane Austen. 
or if that was a longstanding opinion, right? Because I also thought, you know, persuasion, there's like yeah. very strong vibes, I yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> Correlations with persuasion. Yeah. But also Emma, I think, maybe in some interesting ways. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, I mean, you're probably thinking, this is probably what you're thinking about, but I kept thinking, what what would have happened if Frank Churchill's aunt had not died in a timely manner? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then where would, you know, where would uh, Jane Fairfax be? Would Jane Fairfax yeah. be writing Agnes Grey? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, th- there's the governess novel that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that would have been, but in, in some ways that, that's sort of more aligns with those governess novels that resolve the governess's loneliness and liminality and poverty by voila. And then she falls in love yeah. with a handsome rich man who took her away. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. So it, it, it does, it does make me, it makes me very curious to, um, to think about that a little bit more. And I think I have a lead on maybe finding out at least some of the books that were in the library at the Robinsons at Thorpe Hall, at Thorpe wow. Green. So, mm-hmm. um, but of course, that's the kind of archival. It's like you know what you need to find. I need to find a list of what was in the library at Thorpe Green. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, how do mm-hmm. I go about that? Doing that, right? So, um, but I, I think it may there supposedly there is some kind of reference in one of Winifred Guerin's books. So. I'm I'm going to be on the lookout for that. So wow. Yeah. I'll keep my fingers crossed cuz that's <laughs> fascinating. I would yeah, I would just, you know, it does make me it makes me feel sort of not so scholarly because I'm getting because I get really pulled in and start thinking about um about wow. her as she wrote this and because it's clearly based so closely on some of the biographical details of her actual work as a governess probably. Um, mm-hmm. um, so I do find myself, um, being pulled into that, that Bronte myth and thinking about, um, Anne Bronte as much as about Agnes Gray at times, but still, I think, um, I think in, in this kind of book with that first person narrator, it's a first novel. And I think she's, she's, she's putting a lot in there that is important to her. And that speaks to her own experience of the world. Good and bad. Yeah. So uh, would you have time for one last question? Sure. (laughs) Um, So we've asked everyone we've chatted to about Brontes over the years this question. Oh, boy. (laughs) And I'm wondering if um, in the process of putting together this edition, um, if maybe this answer changed for you, mm. but do you have a favorite Bronte? And <laughs> and the second part of this question is, um, what was your first Bronte novel? Okay, um, I'll answer. Uh, let's see. I think my first Bronte novel was Wuthering Heights. I think. Uh, I think I bought. I bought both. Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre from Scholastic Books. 
and you're both too young probably to have to remember this but we when i was a kid um once a month you could buy these inexpensive editions of books from scholastic books and um i think when i was in eighth grade i got both of those books i read wuthering heights first because because at the age of 14 i became an unregenerate old movie buff and so mm. i was staying up all hours of the i would i would get the tv guide every week and mark all the time all the weird late night times i was going to get up in the middle of the night to watch movies on one of the three <laughs> channels that we could get and i had seen the william wyler 1939 wuthering heights which of course you know, there's gorgeous Laurence Olivier and gorgeous Merle Oberon and their ghosts are walking off into the heather together at the end. And, oh, it was so wonderful. And so I read that book and <laughs> imagine my surprise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I will still remember like, wait a minute, there's another Catherine? <laughs> um yeah <laughs> like of course that movie i mean it's a great movie but it just lops off the whole second half of the book mm. so um um that was my first bronte novel and i think the uh the, sorry i should say the orson wells jane Eyre, where he cast himself as rochester um, didn't strike the same no, interest it, no <laughs> it did not it did not um it may have been a few years later before i saw that one um, maybe too, but uh, no, it didn't. It it did not. <laughs> I thought that was so it's weird. A, it's weird. Um, the uh, the best part of that movie, obviously, is Margaret O'Brien as the as mm -hmm. her her little charge Adele. Um, but I mean, she steals every movie she's in. So, and I love the idea of Joan Fontaine as the plain one. It's like, are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> of course, they did that again when they she's she's cast as the second Mrs. De Winter in Hitchcock's 1940 Rebecca too. It's like, who decided that Joan Fontaine is plain? <laughs> um, anyway, but I digress. So my favorite, um, my favorite Bronte, I think at this point, my favorite Bronte is Anne. I will say, mm. yeah, mm -hmm. I do. I do feel that this process. It made me feel um, it made me feel weirdly close to her, in a very unscholarly, sentimental way, and I think especially um, holding her copy of the first edition of Agnes Grey in my hands. Mm. I think you know that I that was um, I was able. We had here a wonderful microform collection of. Um, microforms of all kinds of first editions and stuff that's how another reason through technology i was able to do this project with with no budget to be traveling all over the world you know mm -hmm. to, to different archives mm -hmm. and so on um i was able to find so much and so i had i had printed out from that i had a a printed out copy of the first edition and of course you know it's infamous for its typos and mm -hmm. i as mm -hmm. i was reading it i just felt so bad and then when i saw her 
own copy, which is at Princeton. They I was they were wonderful to work with. Um, there were these little feeble penciled in corrections. And there were so many mistakes that after a while it was just as if she gave up. There would be like there would be like she would have a little comment on a page and literally right next to where she had made one correction, there was Tilly with three L's. And she and she hadn't corrected that. It's just like she gave up. Um, or she couldn't even see all of them. There were so many. And so I think that made me feel early on in the process very um, tender of her. Because I felt like, here's this young woman, and she's she's having her first book published. This, I mean, how enormous is that? And then she gets it, and it's just full of errors. It's a sloppy, messy book. And you know, I, I, I felt like I, I had to, I had to take care of her, right? I had to, I had to take care of this for her and make a, a nice addition. And I think that um, then as I found that there was so little of her own writing left, um, it again made me feel like somebody, somebody needs to speak up for her um, because she's been silenced in a way. Um yeah. yeah, so I think, and I think also I would recommend to anybody who loves the Brontes, especially is interested in Anne, read Samantha Ellis's book, Take Courage, which is a fabulous sort of amalgam of um, memoir with traveling in the footsteps of it, looking for Anne in the various places she lived and worked. And it's it's just, I loved it. Um, and if you liked, um, and I'm, I'm gonna forget her name, Mead, Rebecca Mead, is that right? My Life in Middlemarch. Yes. It's sort of, which I also loved. Um, <laughs> um, it's sort of like that. It sort of combines a kind of scholarship with biography with personal memoir in a way that I just, couldn't put down <laughs> so um and i think that that also really sort of opened me up um to thinking about Anne in new ways we will certainly include that in the show notes <laughs> or a link to that and um i think that you have accomplished what you set out to do with this edition it's beautiful it's such a privilege mm. to read it and to speak with you today Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. And uh, yeah, uh, it's it's one of the best projects I've ever done. And uh, so I hope, I hope that it opens up Agnes Gray to a new readership. Yeah, thank you again. It's been such an enjoyable conversation. So enjoyable to read this edition. Thank you so much. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com 
slash support us to donate. All of the music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band.